This is E-Retailer Conversations on PBN, the Profitable Business Network. Now the host of E-Retailer Conversations with Principal of Profits Plus Solutions, here's your host, Tom Shea, and co-host, Bill Kendi. And with that, we say welcome. Thanks, everybody, for coming and joining us tonight on for what many of you is a a very cold night, wherever it is in North America, around the world that you're listening to us. We appreciate you taking the time and, and coming to be with us for e-retailer conversations. Let's take care of the necessaries. Uh, for tonight, uh, Thursday, December 8, 2016, tonight's program has been recorded as we have done all of the recordings for uh, the shows for the last eight years. Uh, this information will be on the ProfitsPlus.org website. Is our mission stud Bruce Drew takes and uh, does the necessary alterations of the raw recording and puts it into a format that's usable? Uh, that will be it will come as a MP3 file that you can download to an iPod or similar device, or you can simply just go to the website and click and listen to it uh, as you like, whichever works best for you. Uh, during the course of the evening tonight. We are going to be monitoring uh, our email. We will be monitoring Facebook for any uh, last-minute questions that come in that people want to ask, whether you send it to my email, tomshayatprofitsplus.org, or if you responded to the newsletter and sent it to editor at profitsplus.org. We'll be listening to it either way there. All right, so that being said, we've got uh, a great program for you tonight. We think it's uh, going to be very, very informative. We've enjoyed talking to our guest in advance, and I uh, think it's, it'll be a great message for us all to, to learn from. Uh, that being said, co-host up in Michigan tonight, Bill Kendi, are you there? Bill, are you with us? Well, we had Bill with us. We're not sure where he is, but we had Bill Here with us. Just a minute. Okay, there's Bill. So welcome, Bill. Glad you're with us now. There. Yep, I'd be here. So welcome to the show. Um, so let's talk about the program for tonight, where we're going. Um, our guest tonight, her name is Deb Brown, and uh, I follow Deb Brown on online. I enjoy reading her, uh, her news that she puts out. I enjoy hearing her perspective on uh, what goes on out in the world. Um she comes from a, a very neat perspective. Uh, she lives in a in Iowa. She grew up in a small town, uh, Geneva, Iowa, population of 141 people, but that didn't take long for population count. Um, she is uh, has a job of um, being the director of the Webster City Area Chamber of Commerce. Um, if you are like me, that you follow around online and look for things out there, she's... Um, also known as Deb Works. She uh, is a, a storyteller. She likes to tell stories about her experiences. That she likes to sell, uh, share with people some uh, real-world examples of small-town communities. She is truly a champion of small-town communities with the idea of people wanting to work, live, play, and enjoy a a smaller community. Uh, she has a partnership with Becky McGray, and Becky's been a guest on our program a couple of times. And uh, 
between the two of them, they have a concept called uh, Save Your Town. And within that, they are sharing their passion and what is also our passion for small towns. And she's bringing to you very unique concepts and ideas of ways as to how a small town, a community, an area can take and have a good, strong future. So she has a lot of programs that she creates dealing with things like empty buildings, very common in, in small towns, uh, aspects of dealing with customer service or marketing, and likes to talk about areas of economic development with things like chamber commerce and economic developers and tourism specialists and uh, experts in all kinds of community events like small town conferences. She has... Uh, done presentations at the Rural X Summit. She has done a TEDx uh, before, uh, a bunch of other uh, conferences around the, the country. And uh, with that being said, as she describes herself as being a small town enthusiast, we welcome to the show tonight, Deb Brown. Deb, you there? I am here. Thank you, Tom and Bill. It's nice to be here. Well, we're glad you would come and join us. It, uh, as someone who grew up also in a small town, not as small as yours, uh, I, I too have a very strong feeling for them. And as we we talk tonight, uh, and I hear your words of advice and your comments and experiences, uh, I'm thinking a whole lot about uh, my small town, which is Dardanelle, Arkansas, and watching it, how it has grown, but in an odd way, grown in population, people-wise, but really hasn't grown with regard to what I would say businesses there or what's going on life to it. It, it is an area that just does not have a, life, a, a good life to it. As I drive up and down the highways, uh, my wife hitting so we're in this little town. How many people live in this town? I'll say, well, there's like 2,000 here or 3,000 there. She goes, well, how come their town looks so much more alive than your town looks? How, why does your town not look like it's a, a, a town, like the small town that she grew up near of um, uh, Princeton, Indiana? And so those are things we want to talk about. But the, the first thing I want to say is that you label yourself, you promote yourself as being a um, small town enthusiast. So um, uh, let me ask you a, a two-point question. The first one is, what is one of those? Um, do you see there are more of those out there other than yourself and Becky? And if there are, what does it take to be one and what uh, what's involved with it? Well, a small town enthusiast is someone, number one, that loves living and working in a small town. But it goes a little bit beyond that. It also means they want to share their town with others and get other people to live and work with them. So to be really enthusiastic about something, I, I keep thinking about your town of 2,000 people, and you don't see the enthusiasm there. And it's key. You know, I, I believe in talking about the good things and focusing on the positive and taking a look at um, what worked versus what did not work. So an enthusiast, I, I'm pretty sure, Tom, you're one, right? I, I love my small town. I, I mean, I have uh, I own a piece of land in my small town, and I love going home. And when I go to town, it's like 
you know, I have this big thing about shopping with small town, the, the stores locally, and banking with someone in the small town. So when you, you know, if I were to go to your small town, the first, and I love traveling to different towns with my camera and taking a lot of pictures and talking to people, and the first thing I look for are the stores that are open. You know, is do you have a downtown? Are there open stores there? And then I go in and visit with the owners. And, you know, Becky surveyed uh, over 200 rural people about their challenges. And what they said the most was lack of cooperation, obstinacy and stubborn pessimism, and the people who hold them back. So you and I were talking a little bit earlier about the committee of negativity. Well, those are those people. They don't cooperate, they're stubborn, and it's always pessimistic. So one of the things that makes a small town more successful is when you just ignore or leave alone the committee of negativity. And I know you know who they are. They sit in the coffee shop and discuss things and how things used to be and why can't we go back to where we were. You bring a new idea to them and they say, no, nah, that'll never work. We tried that before. You ring it a bell? Oh, that's what we call cave people. Yeah, citizens against virtually everything. Yeah, yeah, they're cave people. But if you don't have enough enthusiasts, enough people that actually love where they live, and and those people are not talking, you have to find a way to bring them together, to gather that crowd, so that you have more positive people in one location. So I imagine in your small town, Tom, it's across the river from a bigger town, correct? A town with a university in it. Well, get those university kids back across the river, right? So you have to figure out a way to do that. And it's not going to be you that's figuring it out. You want to know So this is what you're saying, where it's the not committee-driven type of things that we used to do 5, 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, we're going to talk about gathering your crowd. And I'll tell you what that concept is. Um, used to be, I'm not so young either, I'm over 60, and, and it used to be you belonged to a committee that met every month for a year, and you were tied in with a president, vice president, treasurer, and you followed your meeting minutes, and you just did what you were told. That's the old way, organization. Well, the new way is a lot simpler. It's a crowd. You just invite people you know to show up. Kind of strange in that the old way had lots of control, and the new way there's it's chaos, organized chaos, but it's chaos, and it's a new way. You have to let people try things, and you want to get as many people possible trying as many things as possible. The old way you only celebrated successes. The new way you celebrate tasks, trials, and experiments. And I'll give your audience um, a book that they can go out and buy by Clay Shirky. And it's called Here Comes Everybody. He talks to this very well about doing it. Crowdsourcing is what it is. You bring the crowd together. You want to attract the crowd. And you want them to start talking about the kind of place they want to live in. So you talk about what you want to accomplish. You appreciate the others who are doing it, even those crazy stuff, you know? You make the story a public focal point for a discussion you want to have. And the most important thing is climate control. You want to control the climate of encouragement. The way to get more is to do more. 
So that's your. So is this along the lines of the, uh, what's that old saying? Throw the spaghetti against the wall and let's see what all sticks? Absolutely. And everybody, you know, if you've got 40 ideas up there, don't, don't try to condense it down to 10. Let the 40 ideas stay up. And the ones that will work will stay up on the wall. And the other ones will just kind of go away. Or the, the two or three people with an idea that didn't work might join up with another one that did. So um, I can give you an example, a couple of examples, if that would be Absolutely. Helpful. Okay. So uh, Jen Risley, who is in Monadnock, has a bi-local thing that she does, and she's taken 35 pounds in rural New Hampshire, and all her members, this is on Facebook, she created a group, and her members are all small businesses, and she put all of them on a Facebook interest list for herself. So what she does, everybody comes to her page because she's the public focal point for discussion. Hey, I want to be on your list, or what are you trying, or who's doing this? That's an example that they're doing in the Nodnock. If you want to talk about arts and culture, where I live, we have an Arts or Alive committee, and they had this sculpture contest, but they wanted more people to be involved. So they went to all the businesses and pulled the businesses together and said, let's paint the streets. Who wants to paint the street? Imagine that. And we literally painted the street. We put our design. It cost us 50 bucks to do it because it was a fundraiser for the park. But they gathered the crowd, gave us a square, and said, go paint whatever you want to paint on it. Why so you're just literally painting on the road. On the road, they were painting, like, I'm with the chamber, and we painted our chamber logo on a birthday cake because we're celebrating 100 years in 2017. Somebody painted a big rainbow. The library painted this really cool book image. So each business organization painted different things. They can paint whatever they wanted to. Imagine so, turning people loose to paint whatever they wanted to versus saying you have to paint this. Now, let me ask this one here in the painting. I'm thinking about uh, reading on Facebook a number of communities of late that are doing the, uh, the murals on sides of buildings. Yes. Uh, St. Petersburg is one that's doing it in the town I was born in, Portsmouth, Arkansas. It's another one where they are doing a bunch of people showing up and painting on the sides of the buildings. And why not? Sounds like a good idea to me. It's another focal point. So when you start putting murals up around town, automatically people want to drive over and look at them. Hey, what if your small town you're from were to call those university students and say, hey, we have four buildings. They need murals. Have at it. What would that be? No, well, that's, I look at because when I do go home, I look and go, wow, there's some good-looking you know, things that people created, and it's highlighting all kinds of uh, different interests that are uh, occurring in the Native Americans have something, and the people who look for uh, my, the two towns I grew up in uh, are the two anchor towns out of the movie and the book. And some people, well, let's do the uh, Bass Reeves and the U.S. Marshals and Judge Parker's Hanging Court and that kind of stuff. It's like interesting how different people with different interests have taking on certain points of history. Well, and you know what? Tom, it doesn't even have to be an entire side of the building. 
Waynoka, Oklahoma, had various organizations come together and they painted their utility poles. They're utility poles, those little short poles, you know? And mm -hmm. they're adorable. So now people drive over Waynoka. Oh, what's that one? Who's that one? I mean, it's a tour in its own. Painted utility poles. Oh, see, I like it. Here in our community, we have gone through and put up all new poles for all of the traffic lights because here on the west coast of Florida, having them with the two posts and the wire crossed, you know, it doesn't make good sense for the number of storms that we would have would blow them down. And I threw into the suggestion box that I didn't think the idea was because they're all chocolate brown, really meant a whole lot. And our community, which has been has a very colorful history with baseball, and it's also the, he the headquarters for minor league baseball, I feel like, what if we went to every single post and each one was painted with the design of a different minor league team from somewhere across the United States, across Canada? I mean, like the Toledo Mud Hens and uh, the so-and-so Anteaters and the isotopes that come out of uh, New Mexico. I thought, wouldn't that be cool that you'd want to just walk around downtown and look at all of the light intersection poles just to see what the different communities are that are, are represented of all the different teams. That would be awesome. Imagine how many baseball uh, fans that would bring to your community on top of it. Well, that's why I saw it, but it didn't, we didn't get that one across. But, all right, so the idea is what you're saying is you turn people loose, let them go do something, create whatever it is, uh, and if it becomes well received, paint over it or do something different. What about the situation, though, that you might have a, a somebody or a something that would be, uh, I guess for lack of a better word, objectionable? So, again, you've already formed your crowd. You've gathered your crowd of positive people. So if you have a crowd of 30, 40 people and you have one or two people that are objecting, who's carrying more weight? I mean, that's mm -hmm. how I look at it. That's how we look at it. All right, but there's not a need for here's the good taste crowd to make sure it's done right? No. No. Okay. No, isn't that just strange to think about? No, let's start yeah. trusting people that they know how to do things right. We're all adults. Let's start trusting people that they know how to do things that are acceptable in public. And, you okay. know, if they don't, you paint over it. No big deal. Yeah, that's a paint, coat of paint solves lots of things. Yes, so we're up at uh, 8.20 p.m. here on the, on the east coast of the, of the continent. Uh, it's time for our first station break. Let me tell everybody, as we are here tonight for December 8, 2016, E-Retailer Conversations, a, a monthly event hosted by Profits Plus Solutions with our uh, co-host here, Bill Kendi, and we have been doing this for finishing up our eighth year of this program. And our, our guest tonight is Deb Brown. And Deb is uh, joining us tonight from Iowa. And as you can tell, Deb is just full of ideas that deal with small towns, small communities, and as we will talk about how we're going to 
expand the definition of small town, small community, what else that might have. But Deb, you can tell, is a wonderful resource for this information. I, I think about when I go back to my hometown and talk to people, it's like, gee, nice to take Deb with me to come and say, listen to what this person has to say. Cause, well, they, you know, they can't listen to me because I'm a local kid, and what would the local kid know? Uh, but let me tell everybody, here's the hows and where to, uh, to find Deb. Um, two websites. Uh, buildingpossibility.com, okay, building like a building, possibility.com and saveyourtown.com. Uh, to get a hold of Deb, her email is worksmartdeb at gmail.com and her phone is 641-580-0103. And a quick station break, we'll be right back. This is E-Retailer Conversations on PBN, the Profitable Business Network. So with Deb Brown and Bill Kendi, we're talking about the small, small communities and how they can uh, do things. Not small thinking, just small communities, small numbers of population. Um, so Deb, the question we talked about beforehand and and that was when we say in the pieces we send out to people, small town, I think people immediately put a, a number on it based upon population. Do you? And if so, what's the number? Okay. So it depends on where you are, frankly. Um, in my mind, small towns are under 10,000. But I know other people that think small towns are under 1,000. And there are some that think it's under 50,000. So, again, it all depends on what community you're in and who you're talking to. If you're talking to somebody that lives in Chicago, well, they think 50,000 is a small town. So it, it really does depend on who you're talking to. And I need to, to correct one thing that okay. you mentioned, and, and I don't want people to be misconstrued. We have an interesting website. It's actually www.saveyour.town. I know, .town instead of .com. Oh, okay. And we thought it was perfect. So um, so back to your question. I'm sorry, you know. Okay. Um, so, so at that point, the number is based upon what is big and what's small. But as we talked before the show, does it have to be a town? Can it be a, a neighborhood? Could it be a part of a town? Uh, we talked about Chicago, and I think about Chicago, uh, like also Toronto, you know, very international. You have a community of, this is where the people of Polish descent live, or people of German, or go to St. Louis where you have a German enclave and you have an Italian enclave. And you go, they can be, well, a part of the overall community, their own little town themselves. Yes, they can. I mean, it could. I think, you know, I lived in Chicago 30 years, and I've said for a long time, Chicago is nothing but a group of small towns that happen to be next to each other. Um, and, and I say to you, it might even just be two blocks or one block in a larger city. Maybe that group of people wants to get together, gather, gather their crowd, build connections, and take small steps to create the kind of community that they want to live in. 
So no, it, it doesn't have to be an isolated small town out in rural America, although that's where my favorite places are. It can be a location inside of a location. Well, that depth, so in other words, what we're looking at is a bit of a semantic issue because I think when people talk small towns, they think of exactly what you just described. Someplace that's not really close to any place. They're not far from anywhere either, but literally a small town. And, right. you know, in a way, I think we ought to replace the very small town with what you just said, which is neighborhood and community. Because um, you say it could be, I mean, look, I live in, the, I grew up in the Detroit area. Hamtramck is a perfect example. I mean, it's a city, but it's surrounded by Detroit. You know, right. my uh, my grandparents grew up, you know, because they're immigrants, so they came over and they settled in a place called Del Rey, which was pretty much all Hungarian and Slavic people. Now they were part of Detroit; it was unofficial, but that's really what you're, you're you know we're trying to get at, isn't it? I think so, and I think what what we have to take a look at. For me, I focus on actual small towns in a rural environment. That's where my enthusiasm lies. But it doesn't mean that the Hungarian population in this small town can't identify themselves as a small town right. in, in the Detroit area. So it's right. well, that's what I say how is, they identify. But it's not really, I just, this is, as I said, a semantic, it's nomenclature. Mm -hmm. They're a neighborhood in a community. Not, but anyway, that's what I was wondering. Mm -hmm. yep. So, Deb, how about in looking at this, could we also consider the concepts that you teach to be applicable to something such as a Main Street community, a, a Main Street program within a community, or a, a downtown development mm -hmm. authority, or a, what's the, what's the BID business, uh, all of a sudden I forget what BID stands for, business something development. Would, are those uh, applicable also to what you're teaching? Well, absolutely. And, you know, we do quite a bit of work with Main Street communities already. And I came from uh, Hampton, Iowa, that was a Main Street community. So I know the tenants and how they work. So um, they do great work. They absolutely do great work. It's just different than some of the stuff we do. Again, it comes down to who, how are they identifying themselves, and do they want to be considered that? Right. Well, you know, for example, a farmer's market could be considered an entity in and of its own. Absolutely. Right. And there's no reason that you cannot, you might as well gather your crowd. You'll hear me talk about that. Build connections and take small steps. That's the principle behind being an idea-friendly town or community or region or farmer's market or group, Right. So uh, we promote being idea-friendly, and it's a concept that Becky came up with. Um, it's a platform that we teach on because it's so simple to follow, and we, we give you insights and things that people are already doing. We talked about gathering your crowd. Would you like to hear about how to build connections? Oh, we want to hear everything you can share. Okay. <laughs> well, have you heard the term social capital? Oh, I'm listening to it. Okay. So social capital is how people take what they know and relate to others with it. So most of us are really good at bonding capital. In other words, uh, like people doing like things together. 
So I go to a networking event and I automatically end up with chamber people because they're my people. We're bonding, right? Then there's bridging capital. And bridging capital is when you start talking to people that are a little different than you. So you're trying to build connections by bridging capital. So um, I'm a 61-year-old woman and I want to start bridging capital with a 25-year-old young man to learn more about his ideas and his thoughts. So that would be bridging capital. And then there's linking capital. And you're very good at linking capital. And what that is, you you bring in resources and avenues of interest and things that people need. So you link to outside capital. So when you hear me talk about social capital, improving your social capital, it's a lot like networking better, Okay. So one of the things that makes us better is if we can network better. So the Sloan Review at MIT, I'm going to quote this for you, said, the more diverse a person's social network, the more likely that person is to be innovative. A diverse network provides exposure to people from different fields who behave and think differently. Good ideas emerge when the new information received is combined with what a person already knows. So you can understand now why building connections, not only with people like you, but with people differently from you, is so important. And one of the things that I can recommend everybody try is a simple little concept called coffee and calendar. So in your small town or small community, isn't it just frustrating when you don't know what everybody's doing? You're trying to find out. All of a sudden, you see that there's a, a Main Street event, and then there's a, the Catholic Church is doing a supper, and then somebody else is doing something else, all on the same day. Makes me crazy, right? So uh, the idea of coffee and calendars is just to invite people. Hey, come on over to the coffee shop, bring your calendar, and let's all take a look at what we're doing over the next quarter. And then you just sit down and, and you have conversations with people in different organizations than you or individuals and start having coffee and making sure your calendars match up. It's a great way to connect to outside resources, your funders, your agencies, your trainers, all that sort of thing, linking social capital. But it's also a good way to know what's going on in your community. So, now, this is compared to something that is a newsletter that if you've got a, a center point to your organization that is sending it out? It, newsletters are awesome. I write one, two of them every week. Um, but there's nothing like face-to-face. That face-to-face interaction really just makes, strengthens that connection for you. And coffee and calendars is small enough to do that. You, don't, you invite whoever wants to come and they come, or they don't. Well, we're at the bottom of the hour. Let's take a quick station break. Let Deb uh, grab a a quick glass of water or something right quick for about 90 seconds, and uh, then when we come back, we'll get her to explain why are we playing the song that we're playing tonight. Not finding out 
so let's let's go back. Let's ask our guest first. Let's let her get her a glass of water there. Deb, why are we yep, playing yeah. um, George Benson's Masquerade? Okay, well, first of all, that song was written by Leon Russell, the fabulous <coughs> Leon Russell, who just passed away not too long ago. And I hadn't heard George sing it in a long time, but it's so appropriate to the old way of doing things. Talk, 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 and nobody's listening. And that's why we're playing it. It's time to listen and hear what other people have to say. Well, I've, I like your approach. I should... Uh take you with me uh, on the next trip back to Darnell, Arkansas. Uh, everyone, our guest tonight is Deb Brown. Deb Brown has these really awesome ideas of dealing with small towns, small communities, rural areas, small communities, neighborhoods within a, within a big city. Uh, uh, the whole concept of, of looking at, I don't want to say me against the world type of thing, but the idea of like we are in a, certain area with certain limitations and challenges, which is some of what we're going to talk about in the second half of, the, of our program tonight. And uh, you will find as you listen that she is very, very talented at what she does. Uh, so for those, uh, as you're looking going, wow, we need to talk to someone like Deb for our community. Uh, here's where you find her. Phone 641-580-0103. Email worksmartdeb at gmail.com and you can look at two websites. First one, buildingpossibility.com and the second one, this is the tricky one, I'll get it right this time, <laughs> savior.town. I did not realize town was, was now one of the domain extensions, so it's savior.town. Okay, and then Deb also in the first half hour was recommending a, a good book for us to read entitled Here Comes Everybody, and I have written that one down. So, Deb, let's talk about if we had a town, uh, and I think many of us would, would join you and say, my town issues, whether it's dying, it's dead, or we got those people remembering it's not what it used to be. If you were going to take a community and have some influence, which is a part of your area of expertise, what are you going to go looking for first? What type of something are you wanting to put into those empty buildings to, to bring life? Well, you know, I've done a tour of empty buildings, um, and that's what I would recommend to start with because it's not my job to try to determine what any town needs. It's that crowd that you've gathered to determine what they need and want, right? But in order to do that, um, you know, I tell you, Tom, when, when, when you drive to work every day, you pass by those buildings and you don't even, re you don't even see them anymore, right? They just, it's just another building. But when a stranger comes to town or a newcomer is in town, um, that's the first thing they see is the empty building. So what if you got together with your group of people and said, we're going to showcase our building, and you put some marketing together, and you send it out around the county, and, and you put it up on the Internet, and you get the retailer or the, the building owners and the real estate people involved so that they can talk specifics. 
you know, like this is this many square feet and this costs this much for that. But you also bring in some of those old timers that know what was in that building before and maybe know some history about the building. Ask them to be part two so people can do a walking tour and go look at the buildings, talk to the old timers to get the story because there's nothing better than a good story, right? And to get, you know, to get inside that empty building and see what's behind the closed door, what's upstairs, is there a basement? And then you get people to talk and you continue to get them to talking. So that, that grouchy guy that doesn't have anything good to say, to him you say, I know you don't care. But don't you have a granddaughter that lives in the big city? Wouldn't it be great if she were able to come back here and start a business? So you get into thinking about possibilities. And, and, and that way, you conduct this tour and you get everybody in town starting to talk. And next thing you know, you have people that want to open businesses that you didn't even know about right in your town. Maybe somebody's working out of his garage right now on a hobby and wants to develop it into a full-time business. Maybe somebody in the neighboring county wants to expand. Because you've been showcasing these empty buildings, you're creating a lot more knowledge about your community and what could be possible. So keep it positive and talk about what, what might be there. I, I want to tell you about um, Tony Guidros. He's a director of the Economic Development Corporation in San Saba, Texas. Population 2,700 people. And you know what he did? He brought in the Small Business Development Center people, and they're all over the U.S., for a night of meetings for new and existing businesses. The first night, 22 people attended. The SVDC responded. They, come every, they came every two weeks to train potential new business owners, and in less than two years, they created 13 new businesses and 88 new jobs. <laughs> That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So did they use, um, um, I'm trying to think, where did I see this? Um, I want to say Casper, Wyoming, where they took a building, and I believe it was the old JCPenney downtown building. I'm sure someone like Jill Klein, my friend with Wyoming SBDC, will let me know if I've got the story wrong here. And in doing so, they divided it up into multiple small places, and uh, it's made available for people to come and bring in a business, start a small business, same concept, uh, something out of a garage, to uh, make it into whatever it is. And they have a, a, uh, an incentive of a, of a very attractive rent rate for a small, a short period of time to allow a person to come in and say, Test out that idea that you've got in your garage. Take and bring it to fruition, and then if you find that the concept works and you want to take and make it to be into something on a much bigger scale, then we help you get into a building somewhere else in the community. Have you have you worked with those? Yes, and that's just a, a simply brilliant idea. Washington, Iowa has an old department store that they made into um, small businesses inside this one big large area. So there could be a table where the lady had made homemade scarves and she was selling scarves, something as small as a table, to a larger area where crafts and gifts were being sold. 
So when you walked in, it was like walking into its own little town with all these cool little fun things, and you could have coffee, and you could visit with your friends, and you could shop. Same kind of idea, putting that, building those small communi communities inside one large area. Um, uh, Cavalier, North Dakota, does Crafternoons. And what they do is they come to one location, like a, a, there's 1,250 people there, by the way, and you show up with your own project and you work on it and chat. So lots of quilts, you know, um, and sewing, quilting, that kind of thing. It's a collective crafting, and they call it Crafternoons. And out of that group of people that come to craft, you've got to know there's going to be somebody that's going to turn into a small business because they've gotten together and they're talking and they're working, and you can see who's good and who's, who wants to move and who doesn't. Have you seen anything where, have you seen anything where um, whether it be SBDC or something within uh, a community, a county or such, has been successful in doing uh, research, a survey or something that says, these are the type of businesses that will be most successful or have the best chance of succeeding if brought to it, brought to our community? Okay. So most um, community government has that report on the, the businesses that are lacking and the ones that you need more of and, and, and what you have too much of. And I shy away from that. I mean, it's good to keep in the back of my head. But I wouldn't tell your town or any town, you know what, you need more gas stations and you need more art shops here. Because I don't live there and I don't live in that community. They have to decide what they need in their community. I know it's that new way of thinking. It would be great to use those reports, but those reports don't always touch emotions. They just talk facts and figures. So, yes, you can get them. Okay. Well, my my thought is, I'm looking. At, I'm thinking of my again my town and 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 empty buildings there. And if someone were to walk in and say, "I want to open up a shoe store," and I would look at it, and my my instinct in in what I do for a living would be to look at it and say, "Are you crazy? You don't have enough of a population here to support it. You couldn't have that many styles, colors." You can walk into half a dozen stores in the town across the river, and they've got you beat all over the place. You know, this town has other needs that should be addressed as compared to something that is so inventory and dollar intensive to think that you're going to pull people 10 miles across this bridge to get them to come to your shoe store. You know, I'd, I'd much rather see you do something that would be unique like a, a bakery or something that uh, has a better chance of drawing people. But you're telling me that, no, that's not the way of thinking. I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm not arguing. I'm listening. Yep. I, I would, don't shoot any idea down. The good ideas will work. And here's where taking small steps is so important. Because I would not tell any potential business owner, yep, go buy that building and fill that building up, and we hope it works. But I would say... Let's do some pop-ups around town. Let's try that shoe store idea. You say you make some of your own? Let's put you a business inside a business. We've got a retail luggage store over here. 
Um, let's see if they'll let you sell some of your shoes there during the holiday season. Let's see if that works. You know, try to see what works so that you know before you go big. It's expensive to start a business. I'll be the first one to tell you. I'm in the chamber. I know what it takes, right? But what if we could do some small steps first, right? Let's pull down the barriers of entry. Let's, let's make sure things work first. Do some pop-up galleries. If you're talking to artists, say maybe you have an artist there that, that wants to, to open up an art studio. Well, who's going to come? I just heard you say, who's going to come? What if that artist tries it inside another store or does a pop-up at an event, an event that happens in the summertime? Maybe they have summer nights there. I don't know. You'd have to tell me. Um, gotcha. So they could do a, you know, they, they have music and food and stuff. Ask them to invite pop-ups, too. So invite your Tupperware lady and invite the guy that makes shoes in his home and invite the guy that makes fishing lures and give it a try. So at least they've got some, some, some skin in the game and they can see if it's going to work or not. Makes sense. That's another way to try it. Cool. All right. Well, at this point, we're going to take a quick break for another message. Let me throw in here. Our guest who's going to join us for the January program is a real fine and outstanding talent. Uh, this is a person that I have uh, seen a number of times at, at trade shows, and his name is Larry Farr, and Larry is a talent that can take, well, when it comes to making stores look good, Larry could go out to your trash can and pick up a bunch of junk and bring it in and find ways to use it, and it'd look gorgeous. I mean, he's like Martha Stewart on steroids. That's that's him. Is that right, Larry? Is that how I should describe you? Wow, Tom, that, what a compliment. Uh, yeah, visual merchandising has been my thing for about 24, 25 years now. So in all your years, I mean, there were a lot of people who wanted to go and, and look at your work. When they were up in the in Minnesota, people would come just to see how you did it. Yeah, that was the years I was at uh, Bachman's, which I spent 24 years there, Bachman's a floral uh, garden gift home store, and now uh, five years on my own running a consulting company. So we're going to have the opportunity in January to sit down for an hour and listen to Larry give explanations of some of the stuff that he's done. But we're also going to push a lot of questions in front of him, such as, how do we do that? For a person uh, who walks in who's got no talent, what are you looking for? Well, how, should, how do you make the displays look? What's, what's the factors? What gets people to want to pick up an item and touch it and decide they want to buy it? And uh, Larry is willing to take and give us an hour and, and share all those secrets with us, right? Absolutely. You know, we're going to have some tips, suggestions. Um, I'll even talk to you about how to uh, hire the right people to help you uh, create that look, create that visual impact, uh, design your store, and, uh, you know, what I look for when I hire visual merchandisers. So while all of you will definitely want to call Larry and say, come to my store, we're going to give you a really good teaser of getting an hour of Larry. So join us for the January program. Be ready to hear the great Larry Farr explain everything about fantastic visual merchandising. Right, Larry? That's right. We're going to have a lot of fun during that hour. I cannot wait to be with you. So, so January it is, everybody. Don't miss the show. 
So we're glad to have uh, another great month behind us, or coming up for us, when Larry comes to join us. Like I said, he, he does a phenomenal job. When people in the Garden Center trade where he started going to tours throughout uh, Minnesota, everyone always wanted to go to Bachman's and see what did he do and how did he create a staff of people and how, what he taught people how to do things. And uh, we'll have Larry for an hour next month on a Thursday night to talk to us about his things. Okay, so Deb, let's go on and uh, uh, talk some more. What about, um, let's, uh, let's give the last uh, 10 minutes of the show to um, somebody who is has their own small business. Because while we've talked about communities, we need to hear some ideas for someone owning a business who's listening tonight and here you tell them, so what can I do? My individual business, what what can I do? What do I need to be doing? That's a good question. <laughs> That's a great question, isn't it? Well, the first thing that I want to say, why don't you try inviting someone else into your business? We just talked about that for a minute, but is there an entrepreneur in your neighborhood that's not competing with what you do, but that could bring some product into your store and have a little business inside a business? It right. will increase the foot traffic into your store, which is a good thing. Um, if you've got good customer service, you're going to know how to talk to these people. If you don't, it's time to get good customer service. Um, and it also is time for you to think about, you're not going to like it, but staying open later than 5 o'clock at night. Well, why am I not going to like that? Wait, why am I not going to like that? It's the biggest challenge that we have heard, the number one weakness of small town stores, adapting to being open later hours. Their owners in our survey, rural survey, the, the most selected challenge. The tough situation, you know, these a lot of them are single, uh, one or two people own them. They don't have a lot of staff. So if they're thinking about if they already open at 9 o'clock, 9 to 5 is 8 hours, and they have family, and they want to go home. So, they, so you know, staying open after 5 used to be, uh, when when uh, county seats were where everybody went to shop and, and most women didn't work, they stayed home so they could go during the day when the kids were in school and do the shopping. Well, those days are gone. They're long gone. And uh, Roger Brooks did a survey and found out that 70% of all consumer retail spending takes place after 6 o'clock at night. So that, that's kind of interesting, but... The um, thing that we have learned, some of the studies have shown, Dr. Scott Dacco from Warwick Business School used some of the latest research from sociology, geography, biology, everybody, physiology, psychology, and marketing, and he put together a cross-the-day marketing strategy for retailers. So what he found out was it's like starting a whole different store. When you're open after 5 o'clock, it's a different group of shoppers. In the morning, you usually see your older people, unemployed, you know, people that have time to do this. In the afternoons, you find your youngsters and young adults, maybe those without a little time pressure but no small children. And in the evenings, it's busy time-pressured people. So you have to take a look at what would it be like if I started doing things a little differently for my evening shoppers. What if maybe I opened at 10 o'clock and stayed open till 6? 
give it a shot, right? Or maybe choose two or three nights a week to stay open late and adjust your hours a little bit. You know, in the evening, change the mood. Maybe offer a snack. They're coming in after work. They're starving. They're in a rush. Maybe they want to have a little snack, have some cookies and coffee out. Maybe you need to have some soothing music in order. Are they coming for essentials or browsing for fun? You have to ask. You won't know until you ask them. And you have to I can agree with your experience um, very well. Working with the Main Street community and uh, was visiting a, a business that had a lot of neat stuff that no one needed to have, but it was neat. I mean, neat art, and it was a, it was a Foreman Artist Gallery, and it was along the lines of what you were saying, was lots of different artists had contributed to it, and they all agreed, contracted as to how it was staffed, whether it be by them or someone that they paid to be there, so, because none of the artists could afford to have their own place. What got me in this town was when you asked people where things were, a lot of the reference was according to a restaurant. Okay, we're over by so-and-so's restaurant, and then you go here. You know, that type of thing, how people get focal points of, of intersections in town. And this artistic place, <coughs> excuse me, was next door, and they were doing exactly what you're saying. It's 10 to 6. And I said, have you ever walked next door to see the people in the restaurant and ask the restaurant people, what's the busiest time of day they have? So, I mean, they do take walking trade, they take reservations. And the sad part was the busiest time of day for them was 30 minutes after the art gallery closed. Wow. And I said, well, here, they take reservations, and they give you that little cup holder-looking thing that vibrates and red lights in your hand. And I said, let's get one and test it. And sure enough, we brought it into the art gallery, and the vibrator would work. So you can go over and make your reservation and walk in next door to the art gallery and know that you get the message it's time to come eat. Uh, I, I am shocked by businesses, I say business owners, who somehow think the concept of retail is a 40-hour a job, a 40-hour a week type of thing. No, yeah, it's I not. Where they got that from. <laughs> it's like, well, they work somewhere for 40 hours and they think that's it, go home in 40 hours. And they open five days a week, close to, and, and it's for, and I've seen some as short as 20 some odd hours. And so, you know, this is why we have to hire people. Well, I can't afford them. Well, maybe you shouldn't have been in business to begin with. But, you know, people aren't going to knock on the door and leave you notes and you go, wow, there's so many people who are going to spend money. Now I'll start staying open late. They just leave you earlier. And they leave you alone and they don't come back because you're not there when they want to shop. That's right. And you know, that's just kind of ugly. You're open too. Sorry, we're talking yeah. over each other. If you, if you decide no. to have a, a couple of late nights, make it obvious. Make sure you have good lighting in front. If you don't, add some. And you have to advertise everywhere and you have to update your hours in your online directories, um, the Yelp, the Google My Business, most places. And just make it bright. There's plenty of ways to do that. Um, another thing current retailers can do right now is hold an activity. Why not have classes during evening hours? Leave it yourself or invite in a teacher. It's amazing. Well, People have time. They want to come. If I'm a luggage well, store, I'm going to teach how to pack for a trip. If I'm a furniture store, I'm going to teach on the difference in products and, and why you should buy from me. If I'm a flower store, I'm going to teach how to 
uh, do flower arrangements. I mean, there's lots of things you could be doing. And you could do that once a month to test it out and see how it would work. You know, and it's a little cost, very little cost to doing it. Yeah. Well, you have people spend $5 to come to your class to at least pay for your flowers, you know? Or not. Um, I'll, I'll give you one testimonial to, to what you were saying, that we owned a business that one of the stores that we had was opened up in the early 1950s. And near us, say two miles away, was a a diner, a restaurant, whatever you want to call it, uh, one that just a couple of years ago was on that, what's his name, Guy, whatever it is, Diners, Dives, and something Guy, else. Guys with diners, right. <laughs> right. Him. You know, so on, on that show, we would invite the guy from the diner who was known for making, like, really good milkshakes to bring a small freezer to hold ice cream, a blender, and come over to our store and make little, small, like, four or five-ounce sample glasses of his famous milkshake. Oh, wow. And he would put up signs in the diner that would say, hey, come have one of my free milkshakes, and this is where I'm going to be on this particular day and time. And then we got a person who had an art gallery, and our store had very high walls. And we said, there's nothing up there above the eight-foot mark. Just paint. Why don't you come over and hang some of your art here and have a, a showing? Because we can show a whole lot more art than you can in your art gallery just because of the size of the building. And by inviting these people to come over and put their stuff in our store, each of them had their database of information of, of contacting people that they brought people to us you know and they, these guys are like well how much is it going to cost me and I go oh nothing I just want you to come and do it because now here's two other businesses spending time effort money telling their customers go to Shea's store perfect right oh, that? here they are we're all that close to each other and people walking in and saying I never you could walk from your house to my store, and you've never known I am here. How many thousands of dollars over the years have I spent television, radio, and newspaper? And never got the message to you, but you came for a milkshake, or you came because the guy who owns the art gallery near us said, here's where I'm going to hang up a couple pieces. It's a brilliant way of working together, if your retailers working together. Yeah, it's cheap, it's easy, and highly effective. Uh, yep. So I get that's what she's talking about here. I'm glad to hear it. And there's one more thing I want to say, and then we're about out of time. But Air Dave Fish in Belle Plaine, Iowa, you know, he decided that City Hall needed to be open at least one night a week till 8 o'clock. So now on Thursday nights in that small town, City Hall is open until 8 o'clock. So the residents now have one night per week that they know they can do business with the city. To me, that's setting the example. Mm-hmm. Well, Makes if, sense. Everybody, if everybody uh, takes this information to heart, then they should be hearing a special, very special sound, shouldn't they, Tom? Yes, they should. So, oh, and before I play the special sound and time to tell everybody goodnight, um, let me tell everybody our, our 
guest I need to find she's a wonderful talent. Deb, uh, you welcome back and join us again for another show. Be happy to. Okay, so this is Deb Brown, and this is where you want to find Deb Brown. By the way, we should talk at some point because my family's name is Brown. My my up all on my mother's side, and we could, you know, you he might be in the family somewhere. I don't. We'll have to check this out. Uh, Deb Brown. <laughs> phone number six four one five eight zero zero one zero three. Email her worksmartdeb at gmail dot com. Um, don't forget the book she recommended, Here Comes Everybody, and, and take a look at both uh, websites that uh, she and Becky have, and that is buildingpossibility.com and saveyour.town. Got it right that time, didn't I? You did. Thank you. So, well, thanks for being on the show. Bill, thanks for being with us. Uh from the Shea House to everybody out there, a very special Merry and Blessed Christmas to you all. Here's the sound. Thanks for being with us this year. We'll see you in January. It's been our pleasure to share fresh ideas and trends from premier small business owners, coaches, and resources. Join Tom Shea and guests again next month for e-retailer conversations right here on PBN, the Profitable Business Network.